Jonathan for reading the Bible reading to us. And uh, good morning, everybody. It, it's truly, it's great to be with you. Um, over many years, I've come regularly and it feels like this is a kind of welcoming church for me. I'm from the Baptist Union of Victoria and some of you might not even know it, but you are part of a wider family of churches. And uh, I bring the greetings of the Director of Ministries, Daniel Bullock, and uh, you're, you're one of over 257 Baptist churches right across Victoria. You know they go right up as far as Corriong, right down to Phillip Island and uh, you know, uh, the other side of Mildura and they're right around in uh, all around Victoria, these churches. And these churches are very different. There's some that uh, have lots and lots of people and lots and lots of pastoral teams and there's some that have you know, just a few people in them and would love to have kids going out to kids' church and youth. And that sounds awesome what you have young adults happening here. Um, but big and small. But one of the things today, over a third of the churches, of those 257, when the pastor comes to speak, they'll speak in a language other than English. So it's staggering, isn't it, across uh, our, our Victorian churches. So it's um, a broad and diverse union of churches. But one of the things that uh, I'm part of is the BUV hub. It's a support hub that supports churches. And the vision is to be a union of flourishing churches full of Christ-like followers like you guys, Christ-like disciples, uh, who are making an impact on society. And it's been so good to hear, as I've talked uh, with Aaron, about some of the ways you've been doing some things in, in the region as well, as Christ is living in you and the people of churches, your church is flourishing. I see lots of signs of that together and we rejoice in that. Um, the BUV hub is to encourage and equip and empower our local churches. So we exist, not so we can, you know, make rules or do that but support the churches to flourish and help you and encourage you so it's great to be with you here um, just a little bit i'm part of a team called the pastoral leadership support and development and there's over 400 pastoral leaders and so the team that i lead uh, are regional pastors chris barnden robert hayman who you know and graham semple graham's on the west uh, chris is in the central and robert looks after all the east of the state Kimberly Smith looks after youth and young adults and kids pastors and pastoral leaders, supports them. And Bill Brown is a pastoral coach on the team. And if you love being administrative, feel like moving to Melbourne, then I'm, that team needs a personal assistant and I'm looking for one. So if you know anyone in Melbourne who loves Jesus and would love to help Baptist pastors, let me know. That would be great. But it's great to be here this morning and I want to talk to you uh, this morning about true greatness. I don't know about you, but every now and again, while I'm living my life, I spend some moments starting to think about the life I'm living. It, it can happen out of nowhere when you least expect it. I start to think about the kind of life that I'm actually living right in that moment. It happened last year. We had a great pastor, Peter Jenkin. He'd passed away and people were sharing, family was sharing about the little things Peter did that made a big impact on people's lives. And I found myself thinking about what kind of life do I want to live? And I really thought I want to do more things like Peter did. 
He really showed interest in people and valued them. And it was almost like God was saying, you know, this is more of the life I'm wanting you to live. There's a lot of people that uh, think about that and there's books written on how you can live a better life. One of the top selling books two years ago on Amazon, the top selling book was Atomic Habits. And it was all about how you can put more little good habits in your life and less bad habits. And I suppose the idea is the more good habits you get, the better your life will be. And I think, I want to know what those good habits are so I can live a good life. One that I can look back on and say, this was a good life. Mandy and I, we, we, over the Christmas uh, period, we've had some long trips. And so I was able to talk her in to having listened to an audible book while we travelled. We've never done it before. I don't think we're ever going to do it again, but we had a go at it anyway. And one of the books that we listened to, the, book, the only book we listened to was called 4,000 Weeks. And it's by a man called Oliver Berkman. And his thesis in the book is, if you live to the age of 77, and he's saying average kind of life uh, to be lived, you would have lived... 4,000 weeks. And so then you think, it doesn't sound like many weeks really, does it? But that's his point. He says, well, you can't do everything in those times. So you probably, you know, for me now, I probably shouldn't think I'll be an AFL footballer or go to the moon or do that. I can give up a lot of the things. And in light of that, you start to think, what are the things I, I can be doing? This is what one of the quotes he said um, and he, he's, he's saying really uh, that you have to think about what's significant and intentionally not do some things. He said this, the real measure, measure of any time management technique is whether or not it helps you to neglect the right things. And you might think, oh, okay, so we neglect the right things, but then we go flat out on the, on the, uh, on the other things. <laughs> Well, he says this, he says, productivity is a trap. Becoming more efficient just makes you more rushed and trying to clear the decks simply makes them fill up faster. So I think he's saying actually neglect the right things, but the good things you do, don't rush and try and do everything. So it's interesting thinking, gee, I want to have a good life. I'm thinking about atomic habits, what I should do, what I shouldn't do, and then realising, wow, I've already lived 2,818 weeks, which means on average I've got 1,182 left if I don't die earlier. And I sense this yearning. How can I live a really life that I'll look back and think, I've lived a great life. Do you ever have those thoughts yourself? I think... Um, as we're here today, uh, I'm hoping and praying that today will be one of those moments for you when God actually says something about how you can not only live today differently, but the rest of your life differently. That you might sense him showing you how to live a life that's truly great uh, I, when I grew up, uh, started to work, I had a boss. And it's just fair to say that the boss that I had was pretty mean and 
He wasn't very good at all. And we'd look back and we'd say he was a bully to me. I remember thinking, if that's what leadership is about, I don't want to be a leader. But then I read the verses that we're going to look at today. And it changed my whole view of what leadership can be. In fact, it it changed my whole view of what living life can be like. And I'm hoping that as we look at it, you'll see so much about what it means to live a life that's truly great. And I hope that you'll be able to look back like I think I'll be able to, thanks to Jesus, that my life has been truly great. So let's pray as we open the scriptures this morning. God, thank you for the people who are here today. We thank you for the gift of life that we have today. Right now we're alive and we're breathing, God. And we don't know how many weeks we have left to live. But you certainly do. So we invite you. Speak to us today so that we can live the rest of our lives in a way that is truly great. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you pick up uh, the Bible and start reading in chapter 9, you'll see that the passage that we come to before it, the disciples had had a pretty unforgettable day. I don't know whether it was a whole day, but the chapter sort of starts with Jesus on the mountain of transfiguration. And there's Peter, James and John up there and right in front of them, Jesus is transformed uh, and uh, right in front of them, uh, Elijah and Moses are there. And it's just an amazing, incredible experience for them. And they come down the hill and right there is a boy who's demon possessed and Jesus performs an incredible Uh, miracle where the boy is healed and as they leave that bottom of the mountain and they're walking away from these experiences on the road Jesus starts to share with them about his upcoming death look what it says uh, uh, on there they left that place and passed through Galilee Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples he said to them the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men they will kill him and after three days he will rise but they did not understand what he meant and they were afraid to ask him about it so jesus is sharing with them some very surprising news he was going to be killed i think that must have been a real shock to them you know he's going to be killed but then he also shared i'm going to rise i think they must have been really surprised about that what what does that mean and it was confusing the passage says but they didn't understand what was going on and they were afraid to ask jesus So then as they continued to walk along the road, something unexpected happens. They start to have a heated argument. Seems strange, doesn't it? Jesus talking about his death 
And then they start arguing right after that. And we don't really know exactly what was said, but we do know that the argument was about, of all things, who was the greatest. It's unbelievable, isn't it? Uh, We can imagine what might have happened is Peter, James and John probably said, we're one of the greatest. It's got to be one of us. I mean, we were on the mountain of transfiguration. Just think about it. The rest of you guys, did you get invited? No, we were up there and we saw Jesus transformed. It's got to be one of us. And I could just guess that Peter, who's always first, you know, ran into the tomb. He always speaks quickly. You know, he's set up on the mountaintop. Let's build three tents and stay in here forever. I think he would have said, I'm definitely the greatest. You can imagine James and John, sons of thunder. (laughs) We're the greatest. You know, it doesn't say in the scriptures what happened, but they were arguing right after Jesus had told them about his upcoming death. And I think Jesus must have felt that this was so disappointing. He must have thought that what they're arguing about, even though it was just beyond his earshot, he would have been upset about it. He must have felt isolated, he must have felt sad. Hadn't they understood his warning? They've been with him almost three years, the disciples now. And he was about to face this terrible death. And they're arguing, who's the greatest? It must have been very upsetting. He must have thought, they're no different to the religious leaders of the day. Something has to be done, I think he must have thought. And so then we read in verses 33 and 34... They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? And they kept quiet because on the way they'd argued about who is the greatest. It's almost funny, isn't it? On the road there, oh, I'm the greatest, I'm the greatest. And then Jesus says, what were you arguing about on the road? And no one says anything. But it's, it's like you get caught out, don't you? And it's embarrassing. It's a shameful silence that they must be feeling. And, and in the midst of that moment where they don't know how to respond, everything's quiet, it's a teaching moment. So we read, sitting down, Jesus called the twelve. Jesus placed himself in the position of a teacher in those days who sat to teach and the disciples were gathered around as people who really needed to learn if these disciples were going to be those that would help found the church of Christ in the future if they were going to be the ones that would carry on and take the gospel further then they desperately needed a change of attitude when I think about the disciples um, arguing about who's the greatest. It, it reminds me of what would happen if we put 10 chickens on the stage today. Maybe I bought a couple up from Melbourne. We got some from all around Australia and we put them here. They didn't know each other. And then we put a pen around them and then we threw in some chicken feed and see what would happen. Because what would happen would be in a matter of minutes, an amazing phenomenon would unfold in front of us. The the chickens 
who were previously strangers would form a hierarchy based on dominance or in everyday language they would form a pecking order and instinctively these chickens will determine through a number of skirmishes and little battles they will decide who the number one chicken will be and then the number two chicken would be and then the number three and all the way down to the unlucky number ten chicken and much is at stake in this chicken pen that we would put here uh, this is the way it works chicken number one pecks and intimidates chicken number two without experiencing any kind of retribution from chicken number two and then chicken number two uh, pecks from chicken number one but then we'll take it out on chicken number three who doesn't who, who won't peck back all the way down to poor old number 10 chicken who gets pecked on but has no one to peck poor number 10 chicken um pretty miserable existence for that chicken but i can remember probably the worst weekend of my life I was in year 11 in Melbourne uh, studying and I was going out with a girl who was in year 12 but she was from a country town called Daniloquin. So she'd moved down to Melbourne staying with the family while she studied year 12 and we, we were friends and then after year 12 she was going back home and when you're young, you know, it's nice having a girlfriend but we were practical and we thought it's going to be too hard if you're up in deniloquent for us to keep going out so what we should do is probably when year 12 finishes we'll break off you know because it's going to be too hard very practical weren't we just saying that and we, we agreed but we said she said wouldn't it be good my brother's turning 21 why don't you come up to deniloquent for the weekend we'll have his 21st you meet everyone but then we'll break up after what could go wrong it sounds like a great idea so i had some friend a friend who was going up past deniloquent dropped me off at the start of the weekend. So he dropped me off, I can remember the door shutting and walking down the path into their farm where they were. And as I looked, saw her as I walked down the path, as soon as I saw her, I realised something had changed. And she didn't want to know anything about me. I think she'd already closed her heart off to me. And maybe she was protecting herself, but she didn't want to talk to me for the whole weekend which was terrible because I didn't know anyone in the whole of Daniloquin. And so you can imagine the party started and people are everywhere. And uh, I really tried to make friends with people. But what happened was as soon as I started talking, people could pick up. I was from the city. I was scrawny. I mean, as they shook my hand, they realised I'd never done a hard day's work in my life. And they said, I, I hadn't, I'd never milked a cow, I'd never ridden a motorbike, I'd never gone rabbit shooting, and no matter how hard I tried to talk, no one would talk to me. And I did what most people would do in that situation. I went to the toilet four times. And I just stayed there as long as I could do, you know, without holding up the toilet, just to get away from the crowd. And I can still remember standing there with a punch in my hand, looking out on all the people that would not talk to me with a little fake smile on my face. They knew it, and I knew it. I was the number 10 chicken. <laughs> 
And, and we might look and say, um, the disciples are figuring it out. Doesn't this happen everywhere? And I think we, we would say it does. Like music concerts, at sporting events, at school reunions, at parties, at work, at conferences, even at the church, it can happen. What happens is the most popular are treated to much attention and those who are less known or less influential are lower in the pecking order. And you might say, well, it seems harmless, harmless, Jonathan. What does it really matter? But it actually really does matter because when you figure out where you fit in the pecking order, it dramatically changes the way you treat others. You see, once you know where you fit on the pecking order... It can change the way you think and act. Let me explain. When I understand that I'm higher than you on the pecking order, uh, then I'll find it difficult to find a time to meet with you. I'm incredibly busy. My diary's full. But if you're higher than me on the pecking order, I'm free. I've got any time. You name the time. I'll be available. If you're lower, I'll rarely even consider helping you. If you're higher, I'm going to help you all the time, even if it costs me, and I'll stay till the end of the day to help you out. I'll admire you if you're higher, even honour you. But if you're lower, I'll be insensitive, callous, or even treat you with contempt. The disciples are trying to figure out a pecking order, and Jesus sees a need for teaching. So while they're gathered around, he says these words. Sitting down, he said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. This was a, a radical statement. I mean, it was counter-cultural. Contemporary Jewish culture was immersed in questions of rank, procedure, all their gatherings together, their administration of justice, at meals, all the dealings. There, there were constantly this question that arose of who should be given greater honour, who should sit where, who should eat first, who should be given what rights and where. It was a task that had to be constantly fulfilled and was very important in the day and Jesus in the face of it all he says or in face of all your rank and procedure he says forget it forget it whoever wants to be first must be last and servant of all do you know the disciples would be radical if they lived this out people who had never been served before would have been served they would have loved it but those that felt they deserved to be served would be upset because they'd be just treated like everyone else and honoured in the same way. What Jesus says, I think today is for managers. Managers of companies or businesses. Honour those who report to you in the same way as you honour those who you report to. 
It doesn't mean ignore your authority. No, but value the people who report to you in the same way as you value those in the, you report to at school or at work. The friendless should be as important to you as the one that has lots of friends. You should serve all people, no matter what their status or yours. Jesus was a master teacher. And so after this statement, he brings out an illustration right in front of them. Look what happens. To illustrate what he just said, Jesus took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sends me. The power of this enacted illustration lies in this. In the Aramaic language which Jesus spoke, child and servant were the same words. And so what Jesus is saying here was that the disciples must receive his children, other people, in the same way that he was receiving this child with open arms and welcoming him. Therefore, the rich woman, the poor man, the one with degrees from university, the one who can't read or write at all, should be welcomed equally. And when you think about it, what Jesus is saying is exactly what uh, the writer James says as well in this passage, in James chapter 2 and verses 1 to 2. It says, My brothers and sisters, believers in our Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favouritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man uh, comes in, also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there, sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? You know, what's very powerful about this, that in the time when Jesus was, was speaking these words, in the greater Roman culture, children were not valued. There's, there's uh, references historically of people saying, if it's a boy, uh, keep it. If it's a girl, put it outside to the elements. You know, they weren't valued. So what Jesus was saying was what many people in society don't value, you value. Welcome. It's a challenge for us as a church. And I wonder who Jesus would grab today as an illustration. Because we definitely love our children, don't we? I mean, we would do anything for our children. So I don't think he'd probably grab a child. But maybe he'd grab someone who feels not so welcome. I don't know. I have a guess. Maybe people who would think they would never be welcomed in a church, like uh, an alcoholic, a gambler, maybe someone who's been divorced a number of times, maybe even an LGBTQI person, an angry person, maybe a refugee. It's challenging to us, isn't it, to think, how can we welcome those who would normally not uh, ever get to hear about Jesus. I think Jesus' words 
speak against comparison. What Jesus is saying, take your eyes off trying to do more and being greater in comparison to others. Instead, put Christ first and you last and serve no matter what others are doing. I think Jesus' words speak against competition. Don't try and be first or, or best or greatest. Give yourself to serving others. And if people recognise your good work, great, that's good. But if they don't, keep serving anyway because it's great. Make the best thing you do, following and serving Jesus. Do you know what I love most about these words of Jesus? Um, is that they're so powerful because Jesus not only spoke them, but he actually lived them when you think about it. He's telling us, whoever wants to be first must be last and the very servant of all. Isn't that what he lived in his life himself? Think about it. Jesus came to earth as a baby. He left his glory in heaven. The one who made the heavens and the earth came here in human form. And he had time for children. He loved them. He had time for sinners and outcasts. He healed the sick and the blind. He said, for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. I'm staggered at Jesus' humbled uh, service on the night before he was crucified. Uh, the text says here that Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Can you imagine having all things under your power? Anyone ever had all things under their power. I mean, it's, it's better than any Avengers story, isn't it? it? Here's Jesus knowing that God had put all things under his power. What would you do if you had all things under your power? Well, Jesus got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist, and after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet. Then, with the towel wrapped around him, he took off his outer garment. He showed what it was to be a servant. He used his power for the good of others. He said that we should do the same. He hung on a cross, doing the Father's will so that you and I might have life and life to the full. He demonstrated what it was to be truly great. Some years ago, Time magazine named Jesus as the most influential person of all time. Um, and, and he continues to be ranked as one of the most, uh, you know, one of the most important persons ever. And I know for me, <laughs> he definitely is the most important person. He's changed my life. I don't know, he's changed uh, many of your lives and right across the world. And I think he demonstrates that being a servant to all is a way to live. 
a life that's truly great. One day, your life will come to an end. What are they going to say about you? She barracked for Collingwood. <laughs> I hope not. I'm nothing against Collingwood. No, no. <laughs> he liked fast cars, you know. Or will they say the kind of things that Jesus said leads to greatness? That they served others. I just want to take these last moments. See, if we're in a plane, we'd be saying we're on the landing, coming towards landing, just to give you... But I wanted to just make it painfully practical uh, this morning as we, as we come towards the end. Um, the, the first thing I think that would be good is to actually realise that if this is who Jesus is, living this, and he says, I'm the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I think the best response to a message like this is to give him your whole life. So Michael's just going to put up a slide there for it. I just think the best response to God, Jesus in the flesh, who says, whoever wants to be first must be last, is to surrender your whole life to him. I mean, don't hold anything back because he's for you. He left everything so you could have life to the full. And he's saying, you, know, you could say, I'm forgiven because of Christ. I'm loved. I'm valued. I have gifts. I have a purpose. Jesus is my king. Jesus is my example. I think if you have never given your life to Jesus, look what he's like. He loves you. He's given his life in service so that you can come to know him. Who wouldn't love a God like that? Who wouldn't want to be loyal to Jesus? So if you haven't given your life, today might be the day and you can talk to Aaron about two weeks' time being baptised as you've declared him as Lord of your life. I think that, that's the best response to a message like this. I think the second thing we can try and do is try and figure out how this works out in different places. And, um, and the, the next, uh, I'll just do the next slide. Um, this is what we're talking about here. Uh, so, so if we go back to that second, the one with all the, all the circles, Michael. That one, yep. M many people think that leadership, even in, in the church, is that we have the pastor, this might be Aaron here, and he's the pastor. So he's the one that should tell us God's vision and where we're going and what we're doing. And all of us listen to him and follow. Oh, in some churches, it might be the elders, you know, do that. And they tell us all to do. Um, but whoever wants to be first must be the servant of all. And I know Aaron is like this. Uh, but this is what leadership looks like. It's not everyone doing what I want as the leader. It's me seeking my time to find out what Christ is saying to us all. So that together we go forward. Together we shape uh, what God's wanting us to do in, in our region, in our, in our church, in our service. It's, it's saying that Christ lives in all of us. And while we have a leader who we value and support and we want them to lead us, the leader says, I'll only lead in a way that I know we're discerning together. That's a Baptist way of leadership. It's not having an anointed person that decides what God's saying for everybody. You know? We seek the mind of Christ together. So how does this work out in Baptists? Well, we have a gathering uh, twice a year and people come people come from Wangaratta Baptist we often see you at the gathering where people talk and share some ideas of what God's saying to us all that's one way that it can work in church that happens in leadership as well 
The other way, the uh, final way that I want to talk to you about is in marriage. Sometimes in marriage, there can be some one partner or other that thinks they're bigger. I don't know how to say it. Think they're better. They wouldn't say that they're the servant of all and the last. They'd probably say when it comes to the two of us, I'm probably the first, you know. Now, what we've heard of the pecking order is that once you think you're bigger, you feel entitled. It changes your behaviour. So you might say, this is how it might work out. Because I'm bigger, I can say where we're having dinner this week and you don't get a say. I can talk about how we're spending our money and you don't get a say. Or I can tell you that you need to lose weight, but if you dare say anything about that to me, I only get angry. Jesus would have none of that. He'd say, whoever wants to be first must be last and servant of all. Submit to one another, Paul says, out of reverence for Christ. So today, maybe that's a challenge to you. Um, I think this week as we go out, there's so many ways you can be last and servant of all. Listening more than speaking. Thinking about as a church how you can impact this society by listening to what the needs are and help them realise how Jesus meets those needs by serving. But I think whatever we do this week is to know that greatness, true greatness, is come, comes from having Christ as Lord and living for him. So anyone who wants to be first must be last and servant of all. Go and live not just the rest of today, but the rest of this week, the rest of your however many weeks you have left for Jesus as you serve others. Let's pray together, shall we? God, today we thank you for your words. We pray for us today that we would be those that are put ourselves last and serve. Give us an openness to what you're saying to us about where you want us to serve. Help us live lives that are truly great as we serve you. Thank you for your example. Thank you for all that you have done for us through Christ. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.